Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 311. Today's big Bible question is, what leads to godliness? Well, happy Monday, friends, in a time and season where it seems like all the days and weeks are still kind of flowing together, at least in my neck of the woods. I encourage you and I both to seek the Lord daily. His mercies are new every morning. His covenant love is great and faithful and enduring. He is our hope. He is our refuge in the midst of what we are going through and what you are going through, whatever that may be. Funny thing about doing a daily Bible podcast is that uh, 300 plus episodes in, you totally forget things that happened just a few months ago. For instance, I was reading through all the scriptures today, thinking about what topic to cover, what big Bible question to ask, and I got to our King's passage and thought, man, what a great story and topic. Looking at the brief life uh, that we, at least brief that we know of, of the righteous King Azariah, who was afflicted with a bad skin disease and discussing why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Of course, a quick check of the BibleReadingPodcast.com page, that's BibleReadingPodcast.com, shows that we've done not one or two, but three episodes on that exact topic. So I'm either getting senile or it's easy to forget things when you're 300 plus episodes in and over half a million words. Now, if you would like to hear those episodes, they are episodes 34, 35, and 36. And again, BibleReadingPodcast.com will enable you to find a link to them. Our readings for today in the present begin with 2 Kings 16, then Psalms 123, 124, and 125, Hosea chapter 8, and Titus chapter 1. Now, our question seems kind of basic, but it actually goes into some pretty deep waters. Paul identifies something in Titus 1 that leads to godliness, so let's go read it and see if you can hear it. Listen early on. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. 
To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So right there in the first verse, we see Paul telling us that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. So let's break down what that means a little bit. First of all, the word godliness here is kind of interesting. It appears 18 times in the Christian Standard Bible. 12 of those 18 times, or two-thirds, are in the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. And I take from that, near the end of his life, Paul was quite focused and concerned about godliness, and especially teaching the pastors and elders, Timothy and Titus, all about godliness and what leads to godliness, presumably so they can teach the people in their congregations that. Paul has previously warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that there is a type of godliness that is really more like just mere religion, not focused on truth, not focused on God, not empowered by God in any way. He says there's a form of godliness that actually denies God's power and tells Timothy to run from it. And as we discussed on a previous episode, I believe that Paul is warning against religion that is not based on the truth of God's word, but on what people want to hear and on what the culture considers popular. Christians should flee from such godliness or religion, but they should run to the knowledge of God's truth, which produces actual godliness. Now, let's think about that for a second. How could knowledge of God's truth produce godliness? How could knowledge of something produce a spiritual outcome? That's not normally the way it works. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, and true, worldly knowledge can make you conceited. And factual knowledge about Bible facts can make you conceited too. But we're talking about something different here. We're talking about knowledge of the truth, which is God's word. And it's because the, the reason why knowledge of this truth brings godliness is because the truth that Paul is talking about is the word of God's truth. And the word of God, says Jesus in John 17, 17, has power to sanctify or make holy people. So John 17, 17 says Jesus is praying to his father and he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the word of God has the power, the supernatural, uh, I guess you would say, ability in it to make somebody holy or more godly. Paul is here reminding Timothy that the Word of God is living and active. God's Word has life and it brings life because it's not merely words on the printed page. It's supernatural. In in what is certainly one of Jesus' most important parables, we learn that the Word of God is like seed. When the truth of God's word, or the seed, goes deep into the fertile ground of a receptive human heart, it will bear much fruit, says Mark 4.20. Those, like seeds sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. So how does the word of God bear fruit in us? Well, the answer is because God's word has life and power in it. Consider the parable of the growing seeds. In that same chapter, Mark 4, 26-29, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, but he doesn't know how. 
The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, we humans don't know exactly how God's word does its work in us, but we know it is living and active. We know it is a light that shows us the way, says Psalm 119.105, and we know it is eternal, says Psalms 119.89. So here's the basic but really profound truth. The more knowledge of the truth or God's word we have in us, the more this should produce godliness in us, just like more seed in a field produces a greater and greater crop. The word does the work. So those of you who are actively reading the Word of God on a daily basis are partaking of something supernatural that will bear lifetime fruit in your lives, uh, that will bear transforming fruit in your lives, that will produce a crop of godliness in you. To illustrate that point, I found this great story from Pastor Tim Keller that really shows us a, 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 such a, a great way The Word of God brings godliness to us and transforms us. And this is a story that Pastor Tim Keller, who is in New York City, told many years ago. He says this, The power of the Word changes you from the inside out. It changes your motivation. It changes your identity. It changes the very inside, your structure. So it brings organic growth, not mechanical growth. Some years ago, says Keller, I was on vacation and I went into McDonald's to buy lunch. Nobody goes into McDonald's for the food, you go for the speed. After 20 minutes, I was still in line, and it totally frustrates the whole reason to go to McDonald's. The reason I was still in line after 20 minutes was there was a woman at the cash register, and she was screwing absolutely everything up. She was constantly getting the order wrong. The person would say, I didn't order that, I ordered this. Then she had to reorder and redo it. I was just looking at my watch and I was saying, this is ridiculous. I'm on my vacation and here I am doing all this. I was really mad at her, says Keller. When I got a little closer, I realized why. Her English wasn't good enough for her to understand what people were saying. Then I got more mad. I said, oh my gosh. Why don't they do screening here? What's the matter with McDonald's? What's the matter with their model here in which they screen potential employees? Then I thought, what is she doing here in this society if she doesn't know how to speak English? Then I started, on top of feeling mad at her, guilty about my xenophobia, which means fear of foreigners. Oh my gosh, he says, here I am, a New York City minister, a Christian minister. Here I am, xenophobic about immigrant people. Do you see? On top of my anger towards her, I was feeling guilt towards myself. Then, even though I didn't have St. Paul at my elbow, something happened I'll never forget. I had just that morning been studying the book of Exodus in the Bible, and there's a verse in Exodus I had underlined and thought about. It's the verse that says, Be kind to the alien and the immigrant, for you were aliens in Egypt, but I brought you out. Now pause. When the Bible uses the word alien, we're not talking about Martians or little green men or greys or whatever. Alien in this context means foreigner, of course. All right, back to Tim Keller, who says, All of a sudden, that word went right to my heart like an arrow. And I thought about it. 
The first clause all by itself would just be mechanical. The first clause was be kind to the alien and immigrant because God says so. If that's all it was, it probably wouldn't have helped my anger. It would have helped my guilt. I would have just felt angrier and guiltier. It's the second clause that said, for you were aliens. You were foreigners. You were alienated from me. You were a foreigner from me, but I brought you out. Do you know how God brought us out? He became an alien. He became a foreigner. He became crucified outside the gate of the city. God says, I did that for you. I became an alien for you. I was cast out so you could be brought into my kingdom. I was thrown out of your city so you could become a member of the family of God. So remember that when you remember that, when you see people who are aliens and immigrants. And Keller says, by the time I actually got up to the counter, I was ready to hug her and kiss her. Why? Because I'm a virtuous, enlightened New Yorker? Because I have an enlightened view of race and immigration? No, it was the power of the seed. And the power of the seed is the weakness of the Lord. His weakness for me changes me at the very root. It makes me want to embrace people who are different than me. That's why you have that old John Newton hymn that says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. And William Cowper also said, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Now the passage in Mark 4, says Keller, ends on a note of triumph, Because even though three out of the four soils resist the power of the seed of the word, the last one produces a 30, 60, 100-fold crop. That's supernatural. Conventional agriculture, even modern agriculture, can't produce that kind of yield. Why? Jesus is saying the word of God is supernatural. It's above natural. If you let it in, it's supernatural. In other words, The Word of God transforms our thinking. When we are tempted to, like Keller, have sinful and wicked thoughts against somebody uh, in that situation, it's the Word of God. It's not our own virtuousness that transforms us. It's the Word of God in us that, that bears a crop of righteousness. And so the more we have that truth in us, the more fruit of righteousness and godliness is going to grow in us. So friends, persevere in reading the word. Listen to it. Think about it. Hear it. Pray it. Meditate on it. Let it go deep in your heart. And it's going to produce an amazing crop of godliness in you. Well, let's continue. Second Kings chapter 15, verse 1. In the 27th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Azariah, son of Amaziah, became king of Judah. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecola. She was from Jerusalem. Azariah did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. The Lord afflicted the king, and he had a serious skin disease until the day of his death. He lived in quarantine while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household governing the people of the land. The rest of the events of Azariah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Azariah rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, and his son Jotham became king in his place. In the 38th year of Judah's king Azariah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria for six months. 
He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, as his predecessors had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He struck him down publicly, killed him, and became king in his place. As for the rest of the events of Zechariah's reign, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. The word of the Lord that he spoke to Jehu was, Four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel, and it was so. In the thirty-ninth year of Judah's king Uzziah, Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king. He reigned in Samaria a full month. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, came up from Terzah to Samaria and struck down Shalom, son of Jabesh there. He killed him and became king in his place. As for the rest of the events of Shalom's reign, along with the conspiracy that he formed, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. At that time, starting from Terzah, Menahem attacked Tifsah, all who were in it in its territory, because they wouldn't surrender. He ripped open all the pregnant women. In the 39th year of Judah's king Azariah, Menahem, son of Gadi, became king over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Throughout his reign, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. King Pool of Assyria invaded the land, so Menahem gave Pool 75,000 pounds of silver so that Pool would support him to strengthen his grasp on the kingdom. Then Menahem exacted 20 ounces of silver from each of the prominent men of Israel to give to the king of Assyria, so the king of Assyria withdrew and did not stay there in the land. The rest of the events of Menahem's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Menahem rested with his ancestors, and his son Pekahiah became king in his place. In the fiftieth year of Judah's king Azariah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Then his officer, Pekah, son of Remaliah, conspired against him and struck him down in Samaria at the citadel of the king's palace, with Argob and Aria. There were fifty Gileadite men with Pekah, and he killed Pekahiah and became king in his place. As for the rest of the events of Pekahiah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. In the fifty-second year of Judah's king Azariah, Pekah, son of Remaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned twenty years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. In the days of King Pekah of Israel, King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Janua, Kedesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. Then Hoshea, son of Elah, organized a conspiracy against Pekah, son of Remaliah. He attacked him, killed him, and became king in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. As for the rest of the events of Pekah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. In the second year of Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, Jotham, son of Uzziah, became king of Judah. He was twenty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah had done. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. Jotham built the upper gate of the Lord's temple. 
The rest of the events of Jotham's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical records of Judah's kings. In those days, the Lord began sending Aram's king Rezin and Pekah, son of Remaliah, against Judah. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of his ancestor David, and his son Ahaz became king in his place. Psalm chapter 123, verse 1. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven, like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's eyes on her mistress's hand, so our eyes are on the Lord our God until he shows us favor. Show us favor, Lord, show us favor, for we've had more than enough contempt. We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. Psalm 124 verse 1. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive. In their burning anger against us, then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Blessed be the Lord who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem and the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous so that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. Do what is good, Lord, to the good, to those whose hearts are upright. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with evildoers. Peace be with Israel. Amen. Hosea chapter 8 verse 1. Put the ram's horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. Israel cries out to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They have installed kings, but not through me. They have appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves for their own destruction. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it, and it is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. There's no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour? Even if they did, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim has paid for love. Even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up and they will begin to decrease in number under the burden of the king and leaders. When Ephraim multiplied his altars for sin, they became his altars for sinning. Though I were to write out for him 10,000 points of my instruction, they would be regarded as something strange. Though they offer sacrificial gifts and eat the flesh, the Lord does not accept him. them. Now he will remember their guilt and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. I will send fire on their cities and it will consume their citadels. Have mercy, O Lord. Well, dear friends, may the mercy of the Lord shine on you today. May he give you grace and cause your heart to swell with joy. In Jesus' name, good day and Godspeed.